the end of Jonah, but the first bit of chapter 4, we're in this area that I want to draw out. Church is where people in the city can come and get real with God and get real with his people, where finally they don't have to pretend to be someone that they're not. That's church. It's a gift. It's a safe place, at least it should be. People often in church life confess their sins to me and we pray together. Why? Because church is a safe place of confidentiality and trying to, we're to judge sin and get rid of it together, but we're not to be judgmental and look down on people. And God wants church to be like that, where people get honest with each other and with God, to live the clean heavenly life before we get there in Jesus' name. And there's a great hymn, Take It to the Lord in Prayer. And that means everything. Be honest with God. So I got lots of little questions this morning. Here's the first one. What is the point of faking in church? What, does, what do we achieve if we come and we fake? We fake who we are. We fake how well we're doing with each other and with God. What's the point of coming and pretending to sing or worship? But inside, we feel that God has let us down, or I'm angry at him, or he's allowed something in my life, and so there's great distance. Like, as time goes on and we fake it, what is achieved from that? That's what I want to hammer home this morning. And in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is angry. He's angry at God. I had a friend, and when someone had a strop, he would say they're in a puddy. Do we say that in this part? Of, or a paddy? Puddy? Paddy? You heard that? Well, Jonah chapter 4, what do you say? Puddy? Paddy, right. Must have been from the valleys, he said puddy. Jonah's in a strop. He's in a puddy. Here's an interesting... Um, tweet. Oh, no, no, he's in a paddy. Sorry. He's, I read this tweet. I read something this week from a pastor. In all my years of pastoring, I have learned this lesson. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see the person. And I think Jonah's having one of those moments. What's he like? I wouldn't knock him because some of us never get over being hurt. But I think Jonah does get over it. But for now, he's certainly in that period where he's miffed with the living God. And we're learning a bit about Jonah because he hasn't got his way. Here's, here's another question. What's Jonah's problem? Well, I've made a list of possibilities that this Christian, as in someone who's trusting in the Messiah, I just call them Christians for the sake of long explanatory sentences like the one I've just given. What's his problem? Well, there's a few. I think, possibly. Picture it, Billy Graham's preaching in a stadium and 120,000 people become Christians right there and then and the camera pans to Billy and he's angry. Wouldn't that be strange? Because that's what's happening to Jonah here. And, and he'd be like, oh no, you've just saved all these sinners. I'm so angry. Wouldn't it be strange if Billy, after preaching, would be angry at that? That's sort of what's happening here, oh, I knew you'd be nice to them. Oh, you. And they get blessed. 
And Jonah possibly gets jealous because they've been blessed. So he possibly thinks, well, I'm the well-behaved one around here. What are you doing saving the Ninevites? I'm entitled, they're not. That's possibly one. Here's another one. Maybe. Maybe he thought it was good for Israel, the church over there, and the wider world for the Ninevites not to be forgiven and be welcomed into the family of God because they might start messing up the neat little world that church was enjoying. And maybe they would have to have joint prayer meetings and learn new language problem barriers and get over them. And maybe they'd have to share meals together with people they don't really like. And he's angry at that. Those awkward conversations. Maybe the Ninevites would mess up the furniture and they'd be loud in church instead of quiet. As we like quiet. Maybe that's it. I don't know. That's sometimes why we get angry, I guess. Here's another one. Maybe he uh, really, really doesn't think they should be saved. Maybe he really thinks they should face judgment. These Ninevites for all that they have done over hundreds of years. Like this question, why doesn't God kill all the bad people in the world? Which just so happens doesn't include me, but why doesn't he include them? Or maybe, like, we're in this territory now, think of Nazi Germany. Would you want them forgiven and to share the heavenly life with them? To share church life with a Nazi? Would you forgive them? Would you want them forgiven? Side question, different sermon. Do you think you would have stood against that movement if you were around back then? I think all this might be buzzing around Jonah's head. What about the bad people on your street? Don't you forgive them, Lord. Not that one. Not that one. Don't want to go to church with them. Or perhaps Jonah's like this. He hasn't realized that he's the chief of sinners, like we all are, really. Uh, he's occupied with everybody else's sins. It takes all of his time and thought just talking about everybody else's sins but my own, because that makes me feel good. Maybe he's one of those, so he's angry at God. Maybe he's angry. I've only got a couple more. Maybe he's angry because he's, he's a preacher and he's told everyone back home oh, in 40 days they're finished. And the exact opposite's happened and they've all become part of the family of God. And maybe his prophet game is now over when he gets home no one's going to believe him again because the opposite's happened. I don't know. And you don't know either. Do you know why you don't know? Because it's not in the text. Nobody really knows. But I tell you this, and this is my main point of the day. He thinks God is wrong for what he has done. And lots of people in Cardiff City at the moment think God is wrong on many issues. God has spared people, and then Jonah thinks that God is immoral for doing it. Not loving and wrong. And this is where we're at now for the remainder of the sermon. We all... We all have to come to the place of a crossroads and it's like, do I trust him enough to tell other people about him, even though he might take people through difficult waters? Do I think God is good or not? Am I honest with God and with other people? Like Jonah's there. He has allowed something to happen. I do not agree with his character for doing it. David does it when Uzzah dies in uh, 2 Samuel 6. 
David's like, why did you kill him? What's he done? Job does it. What's going on? What have you done this for? So here's my next little question as we come to the communion table in a bit. Have you ever had your faith tested? Tested. So you dragged your feet to church this morning. What do you do? Because today is about honesty in church. Because what is the point of going on in life faking? Nobody gets anything from that. And Jonah is being profoundly tested. Does he believe that God is good? Now those of you that know Hebrew will know that there's a word play around the word evil at the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4. And something happens at the end of chapter 3. I'll just reread it. When God saw that they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and not did, did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. That's not great English. I'll sum it up. Um, the Ninevites have been evil. It says that there. Then they turn from being evil, and there's a word play there which we won't go into. And then so God relents of judging them for their evil, and Jonah thinks God is evil. It gets that powerful in the original languages. That's astonishing stuff, by the way. Like, have you ever been angry at God? Be honest, because church is meant to be the safe place where you can admit that. It's supposed to be. He did something that I didn't want him to do. He didn't do something that I did want him to do. He's calling me away from a sin that I don't think is evil, but he does. And now I'm at a crossroads. And so when they led us singing, I faked it. I was just miming. That's where we're at with this chapter. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? You may not verbalize it as strongly as Jonah, but you, you weren't in it this morning. Man, you haven't been in it for years. Maybe you're listening at home. You're not a Christian. You're like in your 30s. It's been 30 years of you not trusting God with your life. You think he can't handle you. He's not going to take you to the safe place. What are we going to do? Well, what does Jonah do? Because this is fascinating. In a few, next week, he storms off and he's in a bit of a huff. But before he does that, he does something fascinating, even though he feels wrong. What does he do? He prays. Let me reread verse 2. Oh, it's small. Hold on. He prayed to the Lord. Oh, Lord, is this not something what I said was going to happen before I left home? That's why I ran off to Tarshish. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, and slow to anger, and abounding in love, and now you have relented from sending them evil or calamity in this text. He prays honestly, because what is the point of faking Park End Church? If you are a religious cardboard cutout, nobody is going to come to church because people will think you're weird and fake and not engaged in the grit of life. And Cardiff City will see through churches that never address the grit of life. They're asking all the questions like, why has God done this? We just turn up with plastic smiles every week. Well, Jonah chapter 4 says, time to stop that. Let's get honest. I remember when I was young, my dad used to say to me all the time, Owen, tell God about it. Because 
you don't lose anything from being honest with God. And that's what's happening. Don't bottle it up. Tell him. What are you gaining from bottling it up? Tell him. And so Jonah prays. And his prayer isn't, oh, uh, God's not there. Is he there? His prayer is this. You are there and you are wrong. Which is amazing. That's fascinating. Later on he goes, I'm so angry at you, I wish I was dead. That's what you've done to me. And um, our Wednesday prayer meeting isn't quite like that. It would be interesting if it was. I'm not suggesting, actually, that in public prayer we all sort of just blurge out our most private thoughts upon everyone like dirty laundry. But perhaps we should form small groups or team up with a best friend or maybe even on our own. Stop wasting time and be real in the safe place of church. Lord, I am hurting. And the hymn says, take it to the Lord in prayer. John Calvin says there's great piety in this prayer of Jonah. And what do you think happens when this angry child of God genuinely prays? Perhaps not just swearing at him and they're not waiting for an answer. He seems to genuinely want an answer. What's going on? Why have you done this? The Lord responds in verse 4. But the Lord replied to this chap who's having a paddy. This little man who's miffed off at the great God. And he replies again in verse 9 and 10 and 11. Now, let me tell you one more interesting thing that I think is interesting, but you might not, but I think it is. There's a chap, he's a Jewish scholar. He's called Jack Sasson. He has penetrating insights to the linguistics of the Hebrew in John chapter 4. You're now thinking, what do I need to know this for? Well, I'm going to explain it. He doesn't actually believe that Jonah's a real story, and I think he's wrong on that one, but he treats the language with great integrity, and he's the only Hebrew scholar that picks up on this important point, which if we understand it, will change our lives, which is why I'm bothering explaining some Hebrew. In the Hebrew of Jonah chapter 4, there is an exact amount of equality in numbers of words spoken by Jonah and God. It's like a Hebrew pattern. Okay? There's a word play of identical patterns. Think of Lego blocks. Here's Jonah's speech. Forms a little Lego pattern. Here's God's reply. Same amount of bricks. Same pattern. Okay? Mind blown? No. All right, let me explain why it matters. I'll do it by tutting. Jonah goes to God. In the Hebrew. And then God goes. And Jonah goes. And God goes, did it, did it, did it, did it. It's the same. Do you understand? Right? Okay, I'll, I'll push it further. They're laid out side by side. Why is that important? Here's why. Because not only does the living God respond to Jonah, he gives equal space and time for his child to talk to him. I was on the phone this week saying that to my friend. There was equal silence, a bit like you're doing now. And he said, oh, it's like this. In those presidential campaigns in America, it's like the president's got his moment to speak, and then he just calls on a nobody from the crowd and go, right, now you speak, and you can have exactly the amount of equal time that I've just spoken. It's mind-blowing stuff. You've got the president of the United States and some random 
Basically nobody, right, I've spoken for six and a half minutes, now you get six and a half minutes. Same airtime. And if you grasp that, this is God, God, coming down in a very patient and gracious and loving manner to his child who is upset and angry and probably wrong himself. And yet, he is heard in the courtrooms of heaven. So the news back then would have been, well, ring the news outlets, tweet it, put it on Facebook. Stroppy Jonah has just been given equal airtime to the living God. Why? Because God is a loving, wonderful, caring, good father. When his children are honest with him. It's like, well, how does he, how does that happen? Because we do not pray in our own merits. Jonah doesn't. You don't. You don't do anything in your own merits. We come on the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're remembering that there in a few moments' time. We pray in the name of Jesus. And all of the system Jonah was part of was about the great high priest and animals and lambs being slain for him. And he would know that there's someone that I'm coming there's this priest whose name I'm praying in, and I get heard. Even when I'm miffed at God, he's still going to hear me and work things for good. And Cardiff City needs to know that there's a Father God who can and does work everything for good. And this is the safe place. This is the safe place given to Cardiff for people to know God and be loved. Are you in a bad place? Claim the right of God to access God in your seat right now and just fling up prayers to him. And do it tomorrow. And do it the day after. Don't run away. Pray. Work through it. Find life. Find hope. Don't run away. Push through. Cling on. Yell. Worship. Adore. Pout. Cry. But go upwards. Always go upwards. That is the gift bought for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. I went to Parkside yesterday. That's a cafe by Heath Park. I said... Someone in my life, it's their birthday, and they come here all the time. Can I have a 20-pound gift voucher for them, please? They said, we haven't got any gift vouchers. I said, right, see that scrap bit of paper there? Can you write on that scrap bit of paper there, 20 pounds for, dot, 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 I won't say the name because I haven't given it to them yet. Given it to them this afternoon. They did it, and then I said, can you sign it? Because now the little bit of scrap paper is of great value. See what it happens? J.C. Ryle says the prayers of God's people are like a check. It's just a piece of paper. But what happens is Jesus comes and puts his name on it. See? Puts his name on it. And now the prayers are heard in the courts of heaven. And good will come from all of it. And Job prays. Oh, oh, and it's heard and it's worked for good. And Moses in Numbers 11 prays. Oh, oh, and he hears. God hears. And it's worked for good. And then Elijah prays in 1 Kings 19. And then it's worked out for good. And Jesus prays in the garden, if this uh, cup can pass from me, please. And yet, now here we are, tasting the fruits of God, working all things for good when people are honest. So come to this communion table. Jonah knew full well God is gracious. We know he's gracious. He's done enough to win our trust.
because he sent his son to die our death and rise again. And if he's done that, we know enough that he can handle what we are going through. But don't fake it. Work it through. Before we go there, I want to end by reading one of my favorite stories ever, which happened to my friend Emma. And it's evidence that God does work all things for good. And we may never have such clear evidence until we get the glory for all of our prayers being answered for the good. But this one's a belter. But I tell you, we come with Jesus in view to God and we know he's good. He works things out for good. Here's a cool one uh, about God working all things for good. Right? My friend Emma. I call her my friend. I'm not sure she'd like being called my friend. But here we go. Sometimes he answers our prayers a little later than we expect. When I was nine or ten, I entered a competition that our primary school was running with Belfast Zoo. Emma's from Belfast, see? I love zoos, and Belfast was the best. To enter, you had to write a poem about the new baby kangaroos. The winners would then get to visit them with the class and, get this, give them kangaroo names. I felt sick just thinking about it. I ate, breathed, and dreamt kangaroos. And finally, I won. The night before our, true, our zoo trip, I went to bed early. Excitement had given me a fever, and I was exhausted with anticipation. When the alarm went off, I jumped out of bed, and then I fell over. I felt funny. My skin was covered in red spots, and my pajamas were damp with sweat. Mom, I said, I'm fine. But she was having none of it. I'm sorry, love, but you've got chicken pox. No zoo today. Chicken pox? No zoo? I tried to put on my school uniform anyway. I howled until I was blue in the face. And I shouted at God. Please, God, the kangaroos. Let me see the kangaroos. But heaven was silent, and the spots stayed put. Fast forward 20 or so years. I'm married and pregnant. I've got baby vaccinations. I hate needles, but it has to be done. I want my baby to be safe. That was Tuesday. Today, I got a phone call from the doctor. We need you to come into the surgery. There's been a mix-up. I'm terribly sorry, but we've given you the wrong vaccination. There's a chance it will harm your fetus. Instead of an injection for whooping cough, the nurse gave me one for chicken pox. This is banned for pregnant women, as it can seriously damage the developing baby. The doctor phoned the hospital, a gynecologist, a microbiologist, an independent research center on infectious diseases, my consultant, and the manufacturers of the vaccine. This is serious, they said. Unless she's had chickenpox in the past, and the antibodies are still in her system. I thought back to that day when I missed out on the zoo, the God I shouted at. 
the God who allowed me to get chickenpox, and the God who protected us now. Before we know the problem, he's working on the solution. Thank you, Lord. So we come to the communion table and we say God is good and we trust him. And may that message go out to Cardiff City. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.